Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. Uh, now, before we open our Bibles, I do want to address, and I'm sure that some of you may have seen a headline or two about a third-party uh, investigative report that had been published last Sunday uncovering the years-long um, mishandling of sexual abuse by the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. If you don't know what that committee is or how it impacts the ministry of the local church and especially our own church, Ohana, uh, this is a testimony to the fact that each Southern Baptist church is autonomous to a great degree uh, from the convention. The convention is just a parachurch organization. It's not a denomination in that sense. And so we are independent and not under the authority of such a committee. They are not our pastors, nor do they function as our elders that we are called to in God's word to submit to. Uh, we don't know anyone in the executive committee personally, nor do they know us personally at all. That committee governs a lot about how uh, cooperative monies are spent and deal administratively with much of the SBC nationally and worldwide. Having said that, there is no sugarcoating the findings of the report at all. Uh, there is serious evil occurring under the guise of a God-fearing Christianity that is utterly inconsistent with and opposed to the very heart of Jesus Christ. And there are many victims and many culprits and many abuses of power, and we have to call a spade a spade. And while we are utterly disconnected in so many ways, we are still affiliated with the SBC in that we all come together and churches pool their resources with other churches to help fund seminaries, church plants, disaster relief, and missions abroad, many of which such ministries like us are not intimately and personally connected with the executive committee at all and were naive to the wickedness within. But we cannot use that disconnectedness as some kind of license to not care about what happens at that level. And so I don't know what that means going forward. I'm sure that we're going to have to talk a lot more and more about it as more and more information will be forthcoming from our convention in a plan to deal with these challenges and respond to this investigation. But we didn't feel right uh, to not say anything as if these things were not substantial. They're very substantial and frankly embarrassing and, and condemning of how many so-called Christians have acted in such brutally wicked ways. We obviously do not approve, nor do we take these matters lightly, uh, nor do we take the good of cooperation lightly as well. There are many wonderful things that can occur when churches band together and concert our efforts for the Great Commission. We don't want to take that lightly either. And one of the beauties of the SBC is that we can pick and choose where we contribute. We do not currently give a dime directly to the executive committee at all. But the affiliation does seem to be getting more and more costly. And so please pray for wisdom as to how our church can move forward. Pray for the convention. I'm sure that the enemy would love to negate the good of the majority because of the sinfulness of a few. Uh, please, uh, please do not mistake the evil of a few as some kind of proof that the God of all has somehow failed. For whatever reason it is, God so decrees that there has been a history from the very dawn of the church that tares are sown amongst the wheat and goats and even wolves amongst the sheep and Judas is amongst the 12. And so while we are shocked, uh, we must not be surprised as if God had somehow lost control. God has not lost a single ounce of his sovereignty, nor has the mission of our church family changed at all. And so we do mourn, but we do not lose our footing, brothers and sisters. The task at hand is still the task at hand, and we must be faithful to it. And so having said that, I, I, 
Uh, and you can come and talk to me after service is over. If you have any further questions, uh, comments, concerns, anything you want to uh, talk to uh, talk to me about, uh, or want to know more about our own policies uh, concerning abuse, and to make sure that none of us are in a situation where these things could happen. Uh, but having said that, at this time, I do want to turn our attention to the Word of God. And I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in chapter 9 and verse 1 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 is our passage this morning. That passage can be found on page 866. Page 866, Luke chapter 9 and verse 1. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we come before you uh, really disturbed about what happens in the world. Within the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, um, there's evil. Uh, within the state of Texas, heartbreaking evil. Within the wars we see and in the divisiveness of the nation, there uh, can be so much wickedness within the hearts of humanity. And we admit that we're a flawed and broken people, even within the church. And so we ask that you would speak to us and that you would allow us to know you for who you really are and that you would lead us to a rock that is higher than we are. Help us to trust in you, God. You know all and you see all and you're sovereign over all. Uh, help us to trust in you when we don't know all and we tend to make judgments just uh, based upon a fraction of what we do know. And so we ask that by your grace and mercy and by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would bring us near to yourself this morning and make this particular word effective in each of our hearts. Uh, show us, please, God, how much it is that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The disciples uh, at this point in the text have had front row seats to a series of miracles displaying the power and the authority of the one whom they had left all to follow. Each instance of might further answering the question, who is this Jesus? And we have had four miracles back to back to back to back in these last few passages. Jesus stills the most violent kind of storm that has seasoned fishermen thinking they're going to die. He encounters the most evil kind of unclean spirits, a lesion within a single person, and yet they still have to bow down before him and confess his identity and beg of him not to send them away to judgment early. Jesus heals an illness that doctors and money and every human effort could not treat for 12 years. And Jesus defeats death within a single phrase by commanding a little girl to rise. These disciples have had front row seats to all of this. Who is it that has authority over the wind and the waves in the natural realm? And who is it that has power over the supernatural? And is Lord over sickness and more powerful than even death? Only God is, and therefore the answer to the question of who is this Jesus, well, this is the only God, the Son himself. Each of these four accounts of these miracles in the last few weeks we've had looked at serve to build this mosaic picture of Jesus' very own identity testifying to his authority over all things in all of creation. But at the same time, while that authority is undeniably demonstrated, we also see how it is that Jesus expresses this authority. He does it to protect his followers in the most dangerous of situations. He does express this authority to free an oppressed man whom everyone else had already written off, to heal a hopeless woman who has tried everything and has come up empty. 
and to bring to life the only daughter of a devastated father. This is not just power and authority, but a loving power and a righteous authority giving to us a preview of exactly what kind of kingdom Jesus is seeking to establish, which is unlike all of the kingdoms of the world. These miraculous feats show to us the power of Jesus to one day reverse creation of the ravages of sin's effects upon it. And it's Jesus himself who embodies the very nature of the kingdom of God as a king who has so chosen to come and visit this broken world. Now, so far in the book of Luke, it has been only Jesus doing the preaching, the proclaiming, and the healing. Jesus has been the one to do the work of ministry, but it is in our text this morning that Jesus begins to delegate this ministry and to delegate with that his own power and authority to the followers who have had the front row seats and have been learning from him all of this time. Jesus sends his disciples on mission, and we read in verse 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. We have in these opening verses a shift here. This is a shift in ministry from Jesus and now to the twelve. And these disciples are called and given and then sent by Jesus to do what only Jesus himself had done previously. They are to be an extension of his own ministry. This is not their idea. The verbs are very clear that Jesus is the one who called, Jesus gave, and Jesus sent. This is Jesus' idea. He wants his followers to do the same work of ministry that he himself has been doing, except Jesus is not going to be physically there with them. He's not going to see them through it but he would be there with them in power and in authority. Now, it's one thing to be confronted by a man filled with a legion of demons and to be standing behind Jesus, kind of peeking out from behind his shoulder. The faith to stand with Jesus physically in front of you is one thing. It's altogether another thing to trust that Jesus' power and authority is still with you even though he isn't physically there. It's one thing to see a suffering woman held in bondage for 12 years, Or look into the eyes of a a pain-filled father whose daughter is deathly ill and look at Jesus and try and wonder, I wonder what he's going to do. But these disciples are being sent out to face these situations themselves and face these demons themselves and to cure diseases without Jesus being right there with them. Can they have the same faith in Jesus' word and in his power and in his authority even when we can't see him? It takes a different kind of faith to be on a mission in the world without Jesus' physical presence with you and to do mighty acts in his name. But notice that those things and those miraculous acts are not even the main purpose of the mission. They accompany the mission. They adorn the mission and to a great degree authenticate it. But Jesus sends them out here primarily to proclaim the kingdom of God. This is a preaching mission. And so we have the primary and the secondary, which echoes what Jesus had said of his own ministry earlier in Luke chapter 4 and verse 43. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The primary ministry, the very purpose of being sent is the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God. Everything else is subordinate to that mission at this point. And what Jesus is doing with these men who have been with him almost the entirety of his ministry is to send them to do the very same kind of ministry. 
because there were a lot of villages that had not heard this good news of the kingdom of God and had not seen the mighty works that authenticate this message. Jesus is calling his followers here to be an extension of himself as a testimony to the world. And I think this is a very uh, practical uh, next step in these men's discipleship process. For oftentimes we think we know things because we've seen other people do them. And we don't realize how much we don't know until we begin to try to live it out. We're talking as elders at a meeting this week about driver's education. Some of the uh, kids are going through that. And I remember myself sitting shotgun so many times on countless rides, looking out the window, already knowing how traffic lights work and stop signs and crosswalks, even critiquing my grandpa who's driving, thinking, I already know how to drive. I've been sitting in a car for years. And then the moment I get into the driver's chair behind the wheel, it was altogether a different experience. Do I step on the brake before I start the car, or what do I do? How long do I keep this key turn? My first stop sign, I stopped for 10 seconds, and my instructor scolded me. What are you waiting for? I don't know. Because you don't know what you know and what you don't know until you actually get behind the wheel. And you actually begin to live it out. Otherwise, it's just purely theoretical knowledge. And these disciples may think they know so many things about the faith and so much about the power of God and have a grasp of Jesus' authority, but they don't really know until they step out on mission and face the demonic and encounter those broken in sickness and those who are far from God and still understand that the main thing of this ministry is a proclamation of the kingdom of God and not some short-term fix or temporary healing. It's one thing to nod your head in agreement with the proclamation of the kingdom of God. It's an entirely another thing to proclaim it with your own mouth to the people who need it most. And this is what Jesus is calling these 12 front row witnesses and spectators to do. Jesus is giving to them a delegated power and authority, which is his own, and telling them, proclaim the same message that you have heard me preach day in and day out. This is the mission of the 12. Now, before uh, we move on, I do want to highlight two things. First, a, a principle. I think the next step of faith in so many of our own lives is to step out on mission, is to actually serve is to go out and proclaim. It is to be a witness. It is not enough to sit and to listen and see other people in ministry or be around ministry with this false sense of arrival, even though we've only been a passenger of someone else's driving. I want to encourage you, church family, who love to listen and love to read the Word of God, but are so hesitant to go out and even have a conversation with your friends or family or neighbor about Jesus, or are so hesitant to commit time to actually serving the church in substantial and sacrificial ways that we are often stunting our own growth in the faith. We're stagnating it by not being on mission. Rather than being cul-de-sacs of information, dead ends of it, we're supposed to be conduits and highways for the gospel to go forth. Perhaps it is that the next step in your journey of following Jesus is to actually follow him in being an extension of him to the people around you. A second thing, the nature of Christian ministry in this text is a ministry to both body and soul. There's a concern here of Jesus for both the physical and the spiritual. You know, one of the reasons why um, the authority over demons and the healing of illnesses is so featured in these accounts is to demonstrate the identity of the king. 
that this king is more powerful than the forces of evil and more than capable to reverse the contaminating effects of sin in creation, most notably evidenced in illnesses. There were no illnesses in the garden. But when sin entered into the world, these kinds of ailments, natural disasters, were the necessary consequence of contaminating sin in creation because that is what sin does. It messes up everything. And the demonic influence of the satanic over humanity becomes more and more prevalent. I don't know how else to describe when elementary school kids are being shot as, this, as if that's somehow something less than demonic and the worst evidence of human wickedness in conjunction with it. And so Jesus' authority over illness and demons is proof positive that the kingdom he is promising, he actually does have the authority to bring it about when all is said and done. But that's not the only thing these things do. The ministry being both physical and spiritual, catering to the body and the soul is important for us as a church to realize because it's not only authentication of Jesus' power. These things reveal to us Jesus' very own heart, that his love demands care for the body and the soul. We can't just preach at people and not care about their physical needs. It's just utterly inconsistent that somehow we would care so much about their eternal souls and not give someone a sandwich when they're starving physically. We don't have to minimize Christian charity because eternity is the main thing. Preaching the gospel doesn't have to come by itself. And at the same time, it is that we can't just feed people and clothe them and help them financially and do acts of charity and never actually get to the kingdom of God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ saving someone from sin. For what good is it to feed and clothe and pat their backs all the way on their journey to hell? As if somehow their biggest and greatest needs are just physical. And not the sinful heart within them that needs to be made right with God. And so any social gospel is inconsistent as well. But from the very get-go, we have this heart of Jesus. The good news of the kingdom of God is what people need most. And while these miraculous acts do authenticate this message, that's not the only thing they do. But they demonstrate the very kind heart of our Savior, that he touches a leper who hasn't been touched. He feeds the hungry, he helps the needy, and he calls people to repentance. The ministry of Christ's followers is both body and soul with the priority on the kingdom of God, and I do think that that part of the mission is unchanged. And so we have Jesus sending out the 12 with his message and with his authority, ministering to the villages of people who have not seen him nor have they heard him. Look with me at verse 3, at the manner in which they are to accomplish this and the way they are to conduct themselves on this mission. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere." The mission that Jesus sends his disciples on is a mission that requires real and genuine faith and, and a, a real trust in him. Jesus is sending them out with no supplies, no backup plan, no hotel reservations, not even a snack in their pocket or an extra jacket. And they're going from village to village where they don't have aunties or uncles or any kinds of resources. The disciples are to rely 
totally upon Jesus and upon others and are not to rely upon themselves at all. And they are to be somehow confident that if Jesus sent me, he is going to provide for me. When we look at this mission trip, we find in these verses that Jesus is training his followers to be totally dependent and completely reliant upon him because ultimately, as we have seen in the last several passages, ultimately when we understand who Jesus is and when we come to know him more and more, we can therefore put more and more trust in him as well. The mission that Jesus calls his people to is utterly dependent upon faith in him. Brothers and sisters, coming to know Jesus more and more, this is not a topic of study. This is about a person whom you actually trust. We don't read the Bible to merely learn facts, but we come to know so that we might have faith in him, even when we can't see how he's going to work things out. Bob Deffenbaugh, he writes this, the ultimate issue for the people of God in every age is not how much do you know, but who do you trust? Do you trust Jesus? We've, we've come to understand a lot of theology pretty quickly. We can read a lot of the Bible. We can get a lot of badges on our Awana vest and sing a lot of songs without even looking at the words on the screen because we got them memorized. But if we continue to have more and more confidence that my real security is how much I got in this account or this future career choice or in a stock market that should bounce back one day soon or in the potential that a certain kind of education can bring or in a relationship with another human being because this person will never fail me, I can count on him or her or this future spouse or children to give my life meaning, yada, 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 when all of these things have to be secured before we can do anything towards the kingdom of God, then it may be that we can just know all kinds of facts and not even know our God at all. Because we can learn a lot about Jesus and a great deal of information in theology and still not trust in him, nor trust in what he says. Do you trust Jesus? Do you believe he is who he says he is? And so when these 12 go out and Jesus is not physically with them and they walk into a, a village with no bed ready for them and their stomachs are grumbling at that point with no provision in their pocket and not even an extra jacket, if it begins to rain, they are stripped, so to speak, of anything and everything but their trust in God and how he will provide for them outside of their own efforts and absent of their own resources. We, we can't skim over these verses and how these disciples said, okay. We'll do it because they do do it because there's faith there and there's faith there because they know Jesus. This is part of Jesus training his followers to rely solely on him and have their confidence in the Son of God and not in themselves. But I also think contained within this manner of mission and traveling light, so to speak, is embedded another intention. When you come to a town like Jesus did and heal and preach and do things that people have never seen before and hear things that people have never heard before. Sometimes people get real warm to that. And then you begin to get mobbed. Your popularity can sometimes skyrocket. And then maybe the first house you stayed at had kind of a lumpy bed, but now everybody has their doors open and this house has an extra master suite with a jacuzzi tub. And the temptation there, again, is to take your eyes off that mission 
and dwell more upon what you can get out of that mission. That rather than to minister to the people, the focus can drift to what you can get from the people. I think Jesus is preemptively telling his disciples, just stay at the one house because that's not what you're about. And at the same time, when you stay at the one house, everyone knows where to find you rather than looking at you from place to place to place to see if you keep upgrading yourself. Many ministers have fallen prey to this. Maybe I can make a career out of this thing rather than live and proclaim a kingdom that is not my own. When we preach the coming of Jesus Christ, it doesn't make any kind of sense if it looks like we're living for our own kingdom in the here and in the now. You can't proclaim the world and Jesus Christ at the same time with the same mouth. You can't. And in this sense, we are to be relatively simple-minded and humble in our life choices as well as we live on mission. There's something bigger that's going on in this short little life than just trying to keep upgrading ourselves from room to room to room. But warm welcomes are also not going to be the entirety of their mission experience either. Jesus also preemptively at the same time prepares them for rejection as well. And they had seen this uh, following Jesus. Sometimes he's loved, sometimes he's hated. That in spite of supernatural power, even in freeing a demon-possessed man, the entire city of the Gerasenes, get out of here, Jesus. I know you transformed the most hopeless kind of person into a man in his right mind, clothed, and at the feet of Jesus. But Jesus, you're going to have to leave. And they reject him and beg him to leave their lives. You know, sometimes it is that you may show the power of Christ in your life. You may tell people about the beautiful good news that has changed everything about you. And they just don't want to hear it, even if they're your closest friends. They just don't want to li listen to any kind of witness of Jesus anywhere uh, in their midst. And you can stay and be their friend as long as you keep Jesus out your mouth. But sometimes it is that we may be preaching the best news ever. We can demonstrate it with the power of a changed life. We can love people like we haven't loved them before, body and soul. And you can still be rejected wholeheartedly. Jesus' instruction to his followers in this case is actually one of judgment. They're, they're supposed to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. And in these cases, faith is required and trust in Jesus' method and message is mandatory as well. What the disciples are not to do is go ask the people, well, what didn't you like about my proclamation? Let me get a survey going of all the people who don't like Jesus and tell me what you want Jesus to be. And then based on those results, let me change up the proclamation to make it more likable and acceptable to these people. You want more healing, less preaching? Less of the coming kingdom of Christ and more about your kingdom in the here and the now? We'll do that. But for these disciples, their faith is such that their message had not changed. And the power and the authority from Christ himself had not changed. They were faithful to Jesus' charge. They are supposed to disciple the people who do not know him, not be discipled by the people who reject him. And brothers and sisters, to be on mission is to be faithful to this message and this manner without any kind of change because the results are not up to us. We do in one sense, like a herald, just unroll the scroll and read with accuracy what the king has asked us to proclaim. And we will, from time to time, experience rejection of the worst kind as well. But we cannot let that stop us from continuing on in future ministry. You know, for these men, if they stayed in one obstinate village and refused to leave, let's say they got real sad about it, and they said, we're not going to go to the next village until we convert every single person here. 
Everyone who rejects, we're not leaving. We're, not, we're gonna stay until they don't reject. Then they can't move on to the next village who desperately needs the same ministry. And I think that it is for us sometimes as well, we get so hung up on this one family member. All I do is think about this one person, my one cousin, my kid who's wayward. This is all I can think about. And they keep rejecting it that we can't move on no matter how much they refuse to believe. And no matter how many angles you throw and how much effort you put into it, they seem to block every single one of them. And it's easy to get tunnel visioned and only focus on this one rejection about the one we care about so much that there may be people all around us, friends, neighbors that need the gospel. But because we're so fixated on this one who rejects time and time again, we just simply cannot go to the other villages as well. You know, sometimes it is that we have to take a step back and look at the harvest, which is plentiful, and the workers, which are few. It may not be their time now. Sadly, it may not be their time ever. But we cannot fixate only on the one town or the one person and stifle the rest of the mission that Jesus has called us to. And so Jesus has called the disciples to preach his message He has called them to adorn that message with power and authority over sickness and demons as a demonstration of his heart of love. And they are to do so trusting in him for their daily bread, so to speak, with faith in him in acceptance and faith in him in rejection as well. Look at verse 7 at some of the results of this mission. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. You know, we see here the impact of the ministry of the 12. Now, what they're doing from village to village to village, it actually reaches King Herod's ears and it picks his interest. And we're brought to see a king who really only cares about himself. We're, we're, we're seeing here the use of authority that is really only about self-protection and that self-giving. It's an authority that we see all around the world. You know, this Herod, his dad, once killed all the baby boys two and under in a small town because he felt threatened that one of them would take his kingdom. Kill all those babies then. I'm protective over my own authority and my own rule. The Herod in our text, his son once beheaded John the Baptist for calling him out about sin in an appropriate relationship with his brother's wife. I mean, these are the typical kinds of kings who arrest and kill those not on the same page as them. Is that a new story in the world today? And you can feel that because of the mission of the 12 had caused such a ruckus, Herod is really interested in what's going on under my rule and reign. You can guess why. What's this movement? I don't know about that. People are getting healed. Demons are cast out, not just by one man, Jesus, now, but even by his followers. This is spreading. His disciples are being an extension of him, and there's this interest, this curiosity, this feeling of being perplexed, even a bit of a guilty conscience. When Herod hears the name John, John, he might have been raised from the dead, but there's nothing more than that. Here again is a king who only cares about himself, and his own kingdom, and his own rule, and uses all of his authority to take and take and take, and abuse and abuse, abuse, and he's so disconnected from the people of the world. In contrast, Jesus delegates his authority, and gives it away in a sense, so that people might hear of a better king and a better kingdom. 
Jesus uses his power and authority to serve and serve. Not a hole up in ivory tower, but he gives and gives. He comes to even the worst kind of people. He calls tax collectors and hookers to come and follow me. He touches lepers. Didn't have to do that. I could heal you from 12 feet away, but I'm going to touch you. He travels through death-defying storms to visit just the one guy on the other side of the shore, the most demon-possessed man we have in biblical history. Jesus is not like the kings of the world. And this king ultimately will choose to die for his people, not kill to save himself from his people. And he chooses to die the most horrendous death the first century has to offer in crucifixion for the race of humanity that had already rejected God and lived in whatever which way they wanted. Our king is our savior. He lives a perfect sinless life so that he can die the death that we each deserve because of our sin. He uses all of his power, his might, his authority, his identity, all of that to rescue and save the ones who deserve it least. And then he defeats the power of sin and death in his resurrection from the grave. And if this authority is this kind and loving and gracious, and all of his power has been used to save us, then what kind of kingdom will it be that we can look forward to when he is the one on the throne in full culmination of his rule? It'll be like unlike anything of the kingdoms of this world. And I don't know if you ever get tired of the kingdoms of this world and the people in power now. It's like they're all different, and yet they're all the same. Power and authority abused, people harmed, sin running rampant. Brothers and sisters, a kingdom is coming that will never fade away, that is unlike anything we have ever seen before. Now, quickly, as we close, I want to point out just a few interpretive pitfalls this passage is a, a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. And what that means is it just describes one short-term mission trip in history that Jesus gave to a particular group of 12 disciples. This is not a prescription for how all mission trips should function for all time. For example, in our text, Jesus sends 12 out, nothing on them, tells them to cure diseases and whatnot. Later on in Luke 22, 35, and 36, Jesus tells them, take a money bag this time and a knapsack. And a sword. We have Paul later on making tents to fuel missions ministries. And so we are not to use this passage today to prove I'm going to go out with nothing on me. I'm not going to even bring an extra jacket. Nor should we send missionaries out with nothing on them either. But the principle is still the same. That we are to do all of these things with an utter dependence upon Jesus not upon ourselves or our own giftings or our own resources. The success of the missions is upon the one who sends us on mission. But it's entirely okay to be prepared. It's okay to pack a bag. It's okay to raise money. It's okay to have support. Likewise, the disciples in our text are called to heal, which is a major part of their ministry. We do not find another charge for Christians to go out and heal as a one-two punch with preaching. They went to villages that likely had never seen Jesus in person. They don't have the Bible like we have today. They don't have a written testimony of what occurs uh, of the mighty works of God in Christ. We do. The charge to us in the same book of Luke, at least, 24, verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's the charge. 
It didn't tell us to go out and heal people, but the principle is still there that we should be concerned with both body and soul and demonstrate the very heart of our Savior. Matthew's version, Bob read it this morning, says clearly, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Same principle. All authority is Christ. What does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of the nations. How does it end? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The principle is the same. Christ is with us even when we can't see him and we speak on his behalf and minister with his power even when healing is not the primary focus. Lastly, while these disciples were to shake the dust off their feet, and there is that principle to not get hung up on those who reject us so that we cannot move forward in fruitful ministry, it doesn't mean we just quit on people. Jesus got rejected two passages ago. He left the Gerasenes. They didn't want him. He left because he had to get to other places as well. What does he do on the shore? Heals a woman and raises a dead girl to life. But who does Jesus leave with the people who rejected him? He left a witness, the demoniac himself, testifying to all the things that God had done for him. We can move on without moving on. We can move on without getting hung up. We can still pray for those who rejected us for years and still look for opportunities, but we still need to move forward in what we have to do. And we must, brothers and sisters, for again, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, and perhaps it is that for so many of us who love to hear about Jesus and love to study Jesus, perhaps it is that our next step in this faith journey is to actually go out and tell someone about Jesus. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for this uh, text, and we thank you for our coming kingdom. Thank you for not quitting on the human race. Uh, thank you for uh, looking upon us with love and mercy and grace and, and not withholding anything from us. You gave us your son, Jesus Christ. You gave all of him to us. And I pray, God, that you would give us the faith uh, that it, it takes to really trust in him, to really believe you, to take you at your word, would you enable our church, God, to step out of mission? Whether we're faced with warm welcomes or stiff rejection, would you help us be faithful to the message and faithful to you? Um, I pray, God, that, that Christ would be such the apple of our eye that, that that's all we want to share. And that's all we want to live for. Help us to live simply and, and practically in this very short and passing world. And I pray that you would be glorified in the way we conduct ourselves. We love you, God. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.